Ladies and gentlemen and colleagues from the Commonwealth Secretariat, good afternoon. Um, it's with great pleasure that we welcome you here to this panel discussion on the topic of radicalization, which has been used in some contexts synonymously with extremism and violent extremism. But I'm hoping that during our discussion this afternoon, we'll tease out the various definition so that we are clear about what it is that we're speaking together about and uh, that we will then look at issues that relate to conflict, violence, political goals, but more specifically matters that are health and educational in their remit. I'd like to specifically acknowledge the presence of the Commonwealth Advisory Committee on Health, um, whose members are with us this afternoon and warmly welcome attendees from other Commonwealth organizations for taking time out to be with us this afternoon. So on behalf of Diyadat Maharaj, I'd like to just give you a little background to our discussion this afternoon. The discussion today centers not just only on the significance of radicalization, but the important roles that politics, health, education, and other sectors play in counteracting this challenge. Heads of member states mandated a Commonwealth Commission on Respect and Understanding at Chogam in, 20, oh, in 2005 and subsequently in 2009, in 2011, and 2013, and more recently this year, to undertake to address the issue of radicalization. Um, Heads acknowledge the vital role and global contribution that the Secretariat can make to counter violence and the different forms that it adopts, and specifically requested the Secretary General to lead on the exploration of initiatives to promote mutual understanding and respect among all faiths and communities in the Commonwealth. Despite global declines in conflict-related deaths and stable or decreasing global homicide rates, New forms of organized violence perpetrated by terrorist and criminal organizations are increasingly taking their place. There has been a larger than five-fold increase in the number of people killed in terrorism since the year 2000. Systematic organized criminal violence and terrorism has flourished in some countries to the extent that it reaches conflict death thresholds threatening the rule of law, governance, and peace and security, causing displacement and disenfranchisement. Young persons are particularly vulnerable, whilst new technologies, the internet, and social media are increasingly woven into everyday lives, and these are often utilized by extremist groups as tools to recruit the very youth that are benefiting from these tools for other purposes. Preventing and reducing the number of radicalized young people and those entering into violent extremism is contingent upon a thorough understanding of the root causes and related vulnerability factors. Additionally, it's important to identify early signs of vulnerability and intervene with more intensive approaches, with schools developing skills for respect and understanding, violence prevention, and critical thinking skills to promote community engagement activities and human rights. Education and health initiatives must also be accompanied by the generation of economic opportunities in order to tackle the sense of lack of hope and opportunity, which all too often 
are the breeding ground for radicalization. It's our hope that the following panel session stimulates further discussion on the role of both the health and education sector in countering radicalization. I'd like to now turn to a few of our own thoughts from the perspective of um, peace and the work that we are undertaking in conflict resolution and specifically the countering of radicalization and violent extremism. And excellencies, uh, ladies and gentlemen, with the recent events in Paris, in Mali and Syria on the backdrop, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting just last week condemned violent extremism and raised their concerns regarding the growing, tr growing trend of radicalization and violent extremism, both within the Commonwealth and globally. As a group of nations at Chogam, the Commonwealth acknowledged the serious threat <coughs> that radicalization presents globally, more specifically, violent extremism. It was recognized that various factors contribute to escalation uh, into violent extremism, not associated with any particular religion, race, nationality, or ethnicity, and that efforts to counter radicalization require strong action and cooperation within, amongst, and beyond Commonwealth countries. The role of education was specifically highlighted as having the ability to address the conditions conducive to grievances and alienation which can contribute to radicalization. Leaders at Chogam welcomed the soon-to-be-established Commonwealth Countering Violent Extremism Unit, mandating it to advance the Commonwealth's international role in countering extremism. The Civil Paths to Peace report presents a model based on a multi-sector response to addressing the complex challenges contributing to radicalization and violent extremism. This report played a central role in the discussions at Chogam, with heads of government encouraging the implementation of the report's recommendations. Of particular note was the establishment of a dedicated Commonwealth Countering Violent Extremism Unit to act in this capacity. The report recognizes that governments must go beyond traditional approaches to security, to cultivate respect and understanding between people, it also recognizes that the basis of this understanding is that cultivated violence is generated by fueling disrespect and fostering confrontational misunderstandings. This focuses on understanding the mechanisms which cultivate and contribute towards violence. The Secretariat adds value to this agenda by providing a comprehensive policy approach to address the complex and challenging issue of countering violent extremism. A multi-sector policy approach <coughs> engages all different sectors to cooperate and work collaboratively towards a combined effort to counter radicalization and violent extremism. More specifically, the Commonwealth brings to the platform, the platform on countering violent extremism, three areas in particular. One being the development of alternative narratives or counter-narratives based on principles of mutual respect and understanding as provided in the report on civil paths to peace as a response to the processes of violence and in particular violent extremism. The second being 
support to the development of fair criminal justice systems that are consistent with international human rights standards and provide for legal frameworks. And the third, supporting democratization, socioeconomic development, and the establishment of safe and open platforms for dialogue. In practice, these may include actions such as formulating content for alternative narratives to violent extremism, based on the principles of mutual respect and understanding. It may also include promoting best practice at community level for policing. Would also make reference to encouraging youth employment and political participation. Also, reviewing and strengthening legal frameworks for the prohibition of incitement to discrimination. The same platform would include beyond youth employment and political participation, addressing situations of internal conflict in a spirit of respect and understanding. It would draw on the good offices of the Secretary General upon request. Would also focus on legal frameworks to regulate cyberspace and the new media. And also mainstream violence prevention and good citizenship in education and health systems. This is the ambit of the Commonwealth Platform. I'll narrow down to where we are today. It's a very broad approach that I've spoken of. Suffice to say that this approach and the establishment of the unit are being led by the Secretary General's office with the support of my office as Deputy Secretary General, political. Of prime importance is that this approach is collaborative. We are working across the Secretariat across the groups, but we're also working in collaboration with civil society networks, including the Commonwealth of Learning, Commonwealth Class, Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, universities and academic institutions, yourselves today and others. So our discussions today will emphasize the pivotal role of health and education and how these come to play in our combined efforts and the importance of fostering international dialogue on this topic. There are four R's that I want us to focus on, and they're up on the screen there. Risk, resilience, respect, and rehabilitation. These will make the basis for our discussion this afternoon. A comprehensive policy approach engages these four R's to counter radicalization. Risk being, the R that deals with the identification and targeting of risk factors from the individual, family, societal, and political perspectives. The other R for resilience, the second R being the promotion of skills for personal and population resilience. For example, enhancing social, emotional literacy, critical thinking, and online safety skills. The third R denoting respect based upon a human rights perspective and the voice of violence prevention skills. The fourth R being that of the R for rehabilitation, focusing on addressing mental health issues and using education as a tool to rehabilitate. Whilst this discussion will highlight the complexities of the task that lies ahead, it will equally demonstrate our capacity as a Commonwealth family to begin to tackle this global issue 
and within it the role of health and education in developing our skills. I want to now turn to our panel. I'm pleased to be able to chair this panel this afternoon. And participating on this panel, we have distinguished speakers. We have with us Professor John Ashton, who is president of the Faculty of Public Health, who will address this agenda from a health perspective. We also have Mr. Graham Robb, government consultant on serious youth violence, who will give the perspective of education on this agenda. Then we have Mr. Sean Collins, assistant director of Barnett Enfield and Haringey Mental Health Trust and deployable civilian expert with, foreign, with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Um, and we will have concluding our session this afternoon, Her Excellency Professor Kikafunda, the Ugandan High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. I'm going to ask each one of the speakers to give us a five minute presentation on their particular area and then we will engage in question and answer and enrich the dialogue and then ask Her Excellency to close our session. So I'd like to welcome first Professor John Ashton who will speak to us on the role of health in radicalization, risk resilience and rehabilitation. Thank you, Professor. Well, th thank you, Ma Madam Chair. And um, uh, I think it's so appropriate for the Commonwealth to, um, to take on this topic and uh, you know, um, when the WHO published its uh, report on violence as a public health issue uh, some 15 years ago, um, you know, it, it talked about particularly violence against children, uh, intimate partner violence, one-on-one -on -one male violence, and violence against uh, elders. Um, but this uh, new type of violence, um, which has a, a, an underpinning of um, the internet and social media and so on was clearly not on the on the horizon and I think in, in as much as um, you know that these advances in technology have truly created McLuhan's global village um, in the way in which these influences can be reverberated in such a short time span and the influences can take place then the Commonwealth as a global family is in the right place to uh, begin to, to address these things, I think. Um, public health uh, is quite late to, um, to violence and violence prevention, but um, that WHO report stimulated um, quite a lot of work, not, not least here in the UK. And uh, I'm the president of the UK Faculty of Public Health, which is the professional organization. It's a faculty of the three medical royal colleges of London, Edinburgh and Glasgow and we're, we're responsible for professional training but we're also uh, about trying to influence the agenda as well. Um, the uh, adoption of a public health uh, approach, I think there's three initial dimensions I would say that first of all violence of all kinds is a health issue. Um, you know that there are um, something like 200,000 children killed in conflict uh, annually um, and uh, 100 plus million children made homeless by conflict annually. Um, I think sometimes people find it a bit difficult to understand that, that public health is so necessarily engaged with this. 
there's a leadership role for health personnel in, in these issues. There's, there's something about the credibility that's brought to bear uh, for, by, by health personnel. But also, in particular, I would say that the public health approach itself, the methodology of public health, of um, looking at uh, uh, the measurement of needs arising from violence, determining causes and solutions, advocating effective interventions, mobilizing partnerships, and preventing or um, mitigating the harmful effects of violence gives us a framework uh, to think rationally about how to tackle these issues. Um, and uh, these functions in respect to violence prevention, mitigation, and control apply to all levels of violence in domestic and local situations, conflicts between communities within countries, and, um, and international violence. The fac my faculty will be pre uh, publishing a, its own paper on these matters in the new year, the, the final drafts um, just about ready, and so that's something you might want to watch out for. I just wanted to make a couple of personal references here. Um, for me, um, in, in my own experience, and this audience will have many um, profound experiences of, of violence, some of them of this contemporary kind, but I was very influenced by a colleague of mine, Slobodan, Slobodan Lang, who was the medical officer of health in Zagreb in Croatia. Um, and at the time of the disintegration of former Yugoslavia, Slobodan demonstrated his public health leadership uh, by standing between the Serbian tanks and the striking Krajina, the miners in Krajina um, in, uh, in former Yugoslavia to mediate. And the, 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 the role of medical personnel as mediators in conflict zones is something uh, which can be very profound. Um, the, the, some of the comments already made indicate the, the kinds of lines that we need to work on and build, but um, Helen Keller, uh, in her uh, piece of, of writing called Optimism in 1931, spoke of tolerance. Um, Tolerance is the most important consequence of education. In earlier times, people fought for and died for their convictions, but many centuries had to pass by before they understood another form of courage. That is to recognize the convictions of their close ones and their right to the freedom of conscience. Tolerance is the highest level of each community, highest law of each community. And it's that spiritual factor which protects all that's best in the thinking of people. No loss from flood, no fire, neither destruction of cities and churches by the inimical forces of nature has not robbed humanity from so many noble lives and intentions as it was destroyed by mutual uh, intolerance. And I, I think um, another uh, focus that I think we need to pick up in, in seeing how we can make progress using the Commonwealth as a vehicle here is the work on social capital uh, by Putnam, and, and recognizing the distinction between uh, bonding and bridging social capital. That, that social capital is characterized by reciprocity and trust between people. And reciprocity and trust uh, is much easier created with people who are like us, homogeneous groups of people in, in one way and another. Um, that's what uh, Putnam described as, as bonding social capital. 
uh, as its most extreme, it finds its form, for example, in the likes of the Ku Klux Klan, very strong bonding social capital, but, um, you know, not, not often a good thing. Um, on the other hand, bridging social capital is the social capital uh, of reciprocity and trust, which is built among people who are not like us, or between people who are not like us, who are different, who, who re represent heterogeneous communities, uh, faith uh, communities, and so on. And um, uh, bridging social capital is much more difficult to generate, much more gener difficult to generate, but it is always a good thing. And so we have to think about how we can use the assets that's represented here and in all the Commonwealth countries, in the health sector, in the education sector, to go about building um, much more of that bridging social capital as a, as a preventive strategy uh, for the intolerance um, and hatred which is at the root of, uh, of, of what we're talking about and which has been made um, so much easier uh, in these years of the internet and social media and so on. So it's, it's a big agenda, but I think that there are clues as to the way forward. And I, th I think, you know, I'd finish really on, on saying that um, I offer you a public health perspective as being something which is a valuable perspective to think about these matters. Uh, but also, I think embedding such a perspective in partnership with uh, the other contributions that we're going to touch on as well today um, under the umbrella of the Commonwealth could be very powerful and I think that we should be exploring how to, how to do that. Thank you very much Professor John Ashton. Um, I want to just uh, recall some of the things you have just highlighted, the issues of violence as a health issue as central to the discussions, the role of public health, the concerns of advocacy as a tool that public health provides, mobilizing partners, mitigation, violence prevention, the role of professionals as mediators in conflict, and some of the resources you have shared. Helen Keller and her quote on tolerance as a consequence of, of education. Tolerance as a consequence of education. Um, I'd like us to go forward now, and I'll invite Mr. Graham Robb, current chair of the Restorative Justice Council, previous chair of the Youth Justice Board and government consultant on serious youth violence, youth justice, gangs and restorative justice. Thank you. It sounds as if I'm responsible for the four horsemen of the apocalypse, doesn't it? I, I apologize for that. Um, but my previous life, I was a secondary school head teacher, and it's from that perspective that I, I think I can bring some, uh, some elements this afternoon. Um, so, Madam Chair, Excellences, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the opportunity to be with you this afternoon. Um, I'm going to do three things. First of all, put out some assertions from my understanding of what's going on now. Secondly, I'll bring a couple of current bits of analysis, um, particularly since the Paris uh, incidents. And then thirdly, I'll focus on a few things that schools specifically have been doing and are doing and I'm particularly going to think of this at head teacher level of leadership rather than at school education policy level, although I think there are implications. First of all, I think it's self-evident that the role of schools is to build the knowledge, skills, values and attitudes 
which enable young people to be empowered and engaged citizens in their community at local, global, and national level. There's an assertion we can debate. Secondly, here's the second assertion. Schools can be the safest places in which young people and adults across communities and faiths can discuss the most difficult issues, where grievances can be aired and understood, critical thinking in its widest forms applied to assertion, propaganda, or indoctrination. Third assertion, the way in which schools respond to radicalization has parallels with their response to issues around youth crime, the action of criminal gangs, drugs, child sexual exploitation, and so on. Fourth assertion, cyberspace is used very effectively by some radicalizing groups, but that can be overplayed. There is very strong evidence of the importance of face-to-face -face networking and indeed of family relationships in radicalizing. So we've got to get the balance right on, on cyberspace. Here's two bits of current analysis. Jason Burke, writing in The Observer in, on November the 15th, said, terrorist groups use violence purposely. They have three aims, to terrorize, terrorize to mobilize, and to polarize. I'm gonna focus on polarize. He says, this is the most important. ISIS, whatever you want to call it, has used any internal tension within a community, be that sectarian, tribal, or ethnic, or economic, to open a space that it can exploit. It knows that a community divided, where hate is nourished by mutual fear, is a fertile recruiting ground, and its purpose is to polarize. The second piece of um, analysis I'll share with you is by Scott Atran, uh, working in France and University of Oxford and in Michigan. He quotes an ISIS source. Capture the rebelliousness of youth, their energy and idealism, their readiness for self-sacrifice, while fools preach moderation, security, and avoidance of risk. Two bits of analysis from the current traumas. Now, what are schools doing? I'm actually going to focus just on two areas. First of all, head teachers start thinking about this as universal strategies. What do we do for all the young people in our school? I'm going to give you two examples. I know of a number of schools that have started from the UNICEF rights respecting schools approach. And I'm very interested to hear about the Commonwealth approach. I think it's really good to hear that there's um, a, an approach being taken by the Commonwealth. I would encourage them to look at the rights respecting schools because the starting point is what brings us together, not what separates us. And I know of schools in different parts of this country, because that's where my experience is, who've said that that has been a unifying approach. You then have to have, if you follow that route, a culture which promotes a sense of belonging, inclusiveness, which lives that through its anti-bullying policies, through promotion of equalities, and promotion of empathy. 
So that's the first strand on universal strategy. The second strand is a phrase that's used a lot about critical thinking. Let me unpack, unpack that a little bit. I think, a colleague and I that have done some work on this, think there are three elements to this. And you can sum them up in the ethos which enables critical thinking to take place and the skills for them. The ethos is about an inclusive approach. All our young people in our school are there to learn together. They are about democratic processes through the school day. They are about positive narratives about the context of the school. The narratives is really important. And they're about moral purpose and moral agency. So if that's the ethos, here are the skills. Networking and collaboration, participation and engagement, critical illiteracy, scholarship, particularly in faith schools, and understanding faith and belief and adherence. Interpersonal and leadership skills and managing conflict. Last thing I'd like to contribute to this moment. There are then targeted actions. If those were some of the universal ones. My school, we had a lot of youngsters that got involved in the youth justice system. They were prosecuted by police for youth crime. We developed a lot of practice around restorative justice, which is where you give a child the chance to recognize the harm that's been caused, develop the empathy for the harm that you have caused, and together find solutions to it. So my questions to you as a panel, as, a, as people this afternoon here, do schools recognize their role in relation to radicalization? How can they support each other? And what changes need to take place to support schools doing this sort of work? Thank you, Madam Chair. I want to thank Mr. Rob for his uh, presentation. And again, just appreciate the ground he's covered, speaking to us on everything from cyberspace to the value and balance between it and face-to-face -face networking. A little bit on what terrorists do to polarize communities and how division is a potential breeding ground um, for radicalization. Reflections on the rebelliousness of youth and some examples <coughs> which he's called strands that are utilized in the programs he works on within schools, right respecting schools and that is an approach the issue of what brings us together, and also a strand on critical thinking, but more specifically on the moral purpose and uh, the management of conflict, and lastly on targeted action. Thank you very much. I move forward and uh, ask our last panelist to share his experiences with us. I've heard him speak very briefly about some experience even in South Sudan. Mr. Sean Collins, please tell us a little bit about the view from the ground issues of risk, resilience, and rehabilitation. Thank you. Madam Chair, thank you. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Um, just to very quickly locate myself, I'm a child and adolescent mental health expert. The view from the ground that I hope to give you very briefly and succinctly this afternoon, uh, the ground covers deployments to 
countries such as Sierra Leone, Liberia, Somalia, a number of states neighboring um, Syria in more recent times, and also um, a deployment with UNICEF this year, demobilizing children from various armed groups in South Sudan. Um, the ground does also cover areas nearer to home as well. Um, for many years, I've worked in mental health services in North London. And the first thing I'd like to do this afternoon is, is, is throw out a hypothesis that the risk factors for children and young people being dragged into armed conflict, um, being um, embroiled in gangs and gang culture and criminal activity, or being seduced into radicalization. Many of those risk factors resonate. Many of those risk factors are very similar. So you're looking at things like social deprivation, social exclusion, isolation, family difficulty. That could be family difficulty of poverty, mental illness, substance abuse. These are all very, these are all risk factors that we all know are there and they're there for, for children and young people who are at risk. And another commonality um, is that children and young people who are at risk of becoming involved in um, radicalized activity, being seduced by that, there's a form of grooming going on. We talk about grooming when children are, in, are exploited economically. We talk about grooming when children are exploited sexually. Gangs groom vulnerable children to join the gang, to undertake activities, to commit offences to commit harm to others. So we need to think of an approach that actually can be cognizant, be mindful of the fact that the child's mind, the adolescent's mind is very malleable, very open to suggestion. I very much agree with, with, with Graham's comments on social media. That's not the only route of radicalization. There is also the direct relationship. There is also the, the more intimate forms of, of grooming and recruitment. I've talked about vulnerable children and young people, but they're not the only ones who I believe are at risk of radicalization. We have seen a number of instances of children from schools in London who one would have never thought would end up traveling through Turkey and ending up joining IS forces in Syria. Looking at the girls from the school in East London, straight A students, no families, no, no issues or difficulties identified within the family. I can't answer the question as to why those girls ended up where they did. What's happening with radicalization of children? It's generating many questions that we have as yet been unable to answer. I'd also fully support the comments that's already been made about children and young people being part of society and being included and being given opportunity to, to develop, to grow and to, and to have opportunities in later life. Um, I've just come from a UNICEF program demobilizing 2,000 two children from Cobra faction in South Sudan. And as part of the rehabilitation, we were doing lots of psychological, psychosocial, leisure, educational, and art activities. And one of the things that one of our teachers one day said to the boys was, okay, draw us a picture of what you'd like the most to happen next in your life. And South Sudan being South Sudan, quite a lot of the boys drew pictures of cows because cows are currency in South Sudan. And Madam Chair will, will know that from your experience there. But every single child drew a school. 
every single one. And we had hundreds of pictures throughout the compound, throughout the tents, with scores and livestock. So all of these children were saying, okay, we've been in the bush, we've been fighting, we've been exposed to all kinds of quite horrific violence. Nevertheless, we'd still like to learn, we'd still like to grow, we'd still like to have some, some opportunities to move forward. So I think it, it's the, the importance of having a integrated approach where we're providing for children and young people all of the opportunities that they need to move forward. I would say one thing very specific to my profession and my technical area, mental health and the psychological well-being of children and young people is not a luxury. It's not an added extra. And too, far too often in development <coughs> programs, it's something that may be tagged onto the end of something else, or it's the first to be cut, or it's not delivered because it's too difficult. If you don't take care of the psychological and emotional well-being of children and young people who are vulnerable, who are at risk to being embroiled in conflict, who are at risk to being radicalized, who are at risk of being recruited into gangs, then the risk factors increase and there's more likelihood that they will go down the, the trajectory that we don't want them to, to go down. I'll leave my comments there. It's very difficult keeping everything I want to say to five minutes, I have to say. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you very much, Sean, for sharing your experience from the ground um, and for taking us through various risk factors, starting out at social deprivation, isolation, but also telling us about grooming and intimate grooming being very important, uh, speaking about social media. But I think what was interesting for all of us was the fact that young people desire education, and this is where we can integrate our approach. I'd like to open up the discussion now um, to the floor and ask that uh, you contribute to our discussion, the discussion you've heard uh, over the last few minutes. And um, I'm sure there's a microphone in the audience so that uh, those who raise their hands are able to be heard. I'll ask that when you do raise your hand, you will tell us who you are by name and institution so that we can contextualize your questions or comment. I see a hand up right in front of me. There may be hands further up, so I'd ask that you raise them high enough for me to see. I am Dr. Afisa Zakaria, the Acting Chief Director of the Ministry of Health of Ghana. I'm here for, oh, is it? Cash meeting, yeah. Uh, I take this opportunity to thank the presenters for the brilliant, I mean, comments you made here. And my observation, and I agree with the presenters, education is very critical. Not just the education as a whole, the content. I think uh, what goes out there, there is an element of hatred and uh, misconception, misinformation that children sometimes pick, not just children, I mean, uh, those who receive the information, if the content is looked at very well. And love is taught across board. I think this can uh, reduce or bring to the barest minimum these conflicts we are seeing and people taking risks, I mean, 
So education is very critical and the content is good. We should look at spreading love rather than things that will inflict pain in others. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Professor Robinson Wu, I'm a professor of obstetrics and gynecology. I come from Cameroon, a director of health for the government of Cameroon. Uh, health and education are a hope that can reduce radicalization. If you deliver a child devoid of autism, that grows devoid of polio, of all the post disease that can render the child not useful, will be educated. Either formal education or even learn a trait, how to drive, how to become a mechanic, how to become a builder. When you put all of this into Venn diagrams, the intersection is sustainable development. And when the child develops himself, that child will be pushed away from radicalization. That's my contribution. Hi, I'm Chris Berry. I'm the DFID Head of Profession for Education. So we, I think a really timely discussion. I'm very pleased and very, very stimulating kind of uh, inputs. So just coming from an education perspective, we're, we're being asked some of this from government perspective and so, you know, what can we do more of if it's pro, you know, we have programs in many of the places, Sean, you were speaking about. Um, and one of the things we're struggling with is, is, is actually an evidence base, a kind of solid evidence base around the, 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 the interrelationship between education and, and let's, if we want to call it radicalization or extremism. It's intuitively, I come from an education point of view, intuitively, yeah, it seems like a no-brainer, right? It must have, but actually the evidence is really not there. It's really mixed that this is actually, so some of the people who are radicalized are educated people. They're very well educated people. So it's that link we're struggling with. It'd be really helpful to hear from the panel if they can give us a bit of advice actually on that. Thanks. I'm Rosemary Preston from the Council for Education in the Commonwealth. I've really enjoyed listening to everybody. Um, but I do note, until Chris spoke just now, there's been an emphasis on talking about schools and children. I remind you of the proud heritage of enabling adults to have education, down the century, certainly in this part of the world, where raising awareness to political and social and economic issues, as well as scientific understanding and knowledge in the humanities. What people don't realize or often fail to make the link this is radical learning. They only realize when we hit a period of austerity and conflict, when the first educational investments to be cut are community forms of adult learning. Suddenly, this radical, desirable radical teaching and thinking is dangerous. It's not changed and unacceptable and no longer I don't know, a, a, an investment making adequate returns, it's a threat. I think we have to be very clear what we're discussing. Professor Tony Nelson, um, member of CASH and from the pediatrician from the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Um, we haven't really had a definition of radicalization. 
Um, I mean, the health and uh, education sector often have to pick up the pieces of bad political decisions. Um, I think in 2003, some violent and extreme acts were conducted by Commonwealth countries in the Middle East, um, and this was followed by further acts in, in Libya in, in 2009. So I guess my question to the panel is, how do we de-radicalize and stop this maybe grooming of our politicians who make these bad political decisions. Thank you. Yes, well, it's Commonwealth Human Ecology Council and, and University of Bristol. Uh, I'd like to take us off into a, on a slight tangent, and that is, I've been wondering about the role of nature in Islam and the respect for nature and the fact that many children in our Muslim communities don't have much access to it. And I'm aware of uh, excursions, activities, exchanges of urban with rural children, in particular in Vermont and New York. And I just wonder if there isn't a way through gardening, excursions, exchanges, that children could start to work together across schools, across different communities within schools, so that they learn to see the perspectives of others and also engage in participatory decision-making in their environment so that they, they grow with the respect for the perspectives of others. Thank you. Uh, really timely and uh, thought-provoking conversation. Uh, I'm Abhik Sen from the Youth Division here at the Commonwealth Secretariat. Um, I think the kind of radicalization that we are talking about today, I think we can all agree, has its epicenter in a particular part of the world. And some of you may be familiar with the economist Thomas Piketty and his work. Last year, he came out with this um, celebrated uh, book called Capital. He's come out with a new uh, paper, and that's based on uh, research, extensive research that he and his team have done um, to show that the radicalization uh, and, the, and radical and extremist ideologies that are spewing, spewing forth um, from this part of the world are really driven not by um, so, so, social or um, education-related factors, but by income inequality. So in this part of the world, it's a rich part of the world, but most of the wealth is concentrated in the hands of very few people. And that is, in a sense, the root cause that is fueling a, a, a lot of um, ex extremism and radicalization. So I wonder whether the panel uh, has any views on that uh, based on their own perspectives, uh, and for that matter, anyone else in this room, uh, whether um, e the economic uh, aspect of these uh, issues um, need to be reflected upon uh, a bit more. Thank you. Thank you. My name is uh, Abdul Majid. I am a common scholar studying health economics at the University of Birmingham. Um, I'd like to touch on the education aspects, and um, I think um, it will be important to pay some particular attention to the faith-based groups that uh, these young ones in the secondary schools most especially come into contact with. You know, these groups have tremendous influence on uh, what uh, those children grow up to be in the future. So I think if we pay attention to the faith-based groups that they come into contact with, especially um, 
leaders of faith organizations that um, speak to these people, you know, uh, regarding their faith. I, I think it's an important area that we need to look at. Secondly, I also think it's important to look at um, how we can improve transparency, you know, at the governance um, circles. I think this is particularly important because um, to the extent that most young ones feel that um, the governance processes are not transparent enough, then they hold on to their own perceptions or their own views, you know, about the governance process. And to that extent, they become more vulnerable. And the more vulnerable they become, then we can expect that you know, we will see most of these things, you know, going on around that is uh, radicalization. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Ibrahim Gunu. I'm a Commonwealth scholar, a final year PhD student uh, in Keele University, School of Public Policy and Professional Practice. Um, I was putting up, I, I was writing an article on this issue, radicalization. My concentration was on uh, those who have not had the opportunity to experience formal education. Later, I got to know that I was wrong in the sense that um, university graduates were being radicalized in the wake of university graduates joining um, ISIS, so to speak. So I want to suggest that um, there should be something like uh, the focus should be on policy dialogue, on how to transform education in Commonwealth states that promotes critical thinking and tolerance. Also, those attending faith-based institutions, there is a need for us to have a very standard curriculum that promotes all these values. Effective supervision must also be promoted because that's very essential so that we know what these children, the experiences that they are going through in these institutions. Thank you. Last question from jo Joanne there, and then I'll come back to the panel and ask the panelists to respond. Thank you, DSG. I'm coming from the public sector governance unit of the Commonwealth Secretariat. And uh, I think two speakers so far commented on this. I'm looking at this from a governance perspective because even though education is not operating in a vacuum, but many times you find citizens are disappointed with governments, they don't trust governments. The illustration of graduates becoming radicalized or joining um, different groups and gangs is as a result of being disappointed. Many of them in developing countries go to university where you find your whole family takes everything they have and send you to school. And they expect that when you graduate, you will have a job. This does not happen. They become disappointed they are become vulnerable, so anybody that passes by and say, come and give them some money, they will go. The other aspect is, if citizens don't trust government, then the legitimacy of the government is questioned. And then people who go with complaints, whether they want a birth certificate or they want a passport or they want whatever, these 
um, complaints are not answered. It brings out frustration and they don't believe in government anymore. So as we push transparency and accountability in government, we have to push equality, access, and also opportunity. And so those are my contributions. Thank you. Thank you. I want to close off our question and answer, well, the question part and your comments, and come back to the front so that we can ask our panelists to respond. And before I do, I want to ask Joanna if she would indulge us and allow us to run over shortly, because I do realize it's about 10 after 4 and you wanted us to finish in five minutes. If you allow us to talk a little bit further, maybe 4.30 to close, if that's all right, that will give the panelists enough time to share their views on all the issues you've raised. Silence means consent. Okay. Thank you. I'll ask the panelists to each share maybe four minutes each on their own thoughts. Thank you. And we maybe start on my far left. Right. Um, a lot of different dimensions to that. Um, a lot of it of the comments I would absolutely agree with. This is about aspirational routes for young people and, opp and opportunities they can access. So it is saying to them, you are a citizen and trying to work out ways in which some of the inequalities that were mentioned are addressed. Inequalities between boys and girls, inequalities by geography and so on. I would also say we've had a good reflection on the range of risks because as Sean and others have said, some of those that have gone into the radical routes, however we want to define those, have been among the most able of our community. And some have had extreme learning difficulties. And you cannot yet, going back to your evidence-based point, there is not a sufficient quantum of data to come down one way or another, I think, on that. But can I pick up your specific point? When I was writing some of the guidance for the UK government some years ago, we wrote a, collectively wrote a book called Learning Together to be Safe, which is in the government archives, talk about afterwards and there was not an evidence base about a, a link between attainment and counter-radicalization work the nearest link was the risk of gang engagement that Sean was hinting at and there is good evidence of an economic and an educative impact of some of that grooming and gang work which I'm happy to share with colleagues I, I go back to the first contribution you made uh, um, this is about the ability to live together in community and there are some stunningly wonderful examples uh, uh, there's one I'm thinking of of a primary school in Bradford in the north of England where there was conflict within the school because of two competing faith communities in that area it doesn't matter what the faiths were the head teacher brought the groups together and in effect became a community resolution vehicle Colleagues will know that in this country, it is still, from my point of view, a matter of shame that some of our schools in Northern Ireland are still desegregated on a basis of faith. And despite the progress of, uh, being political, of the Good Friday Agreement, we've still not got communities living together in a united school basis. I counter that argument by saying, recently, inspection in this country has shown one of the best approaches to helping youngsters be part of a wider school community was from a Muslim faith school 
in England. And I don't think we have yet re reconciled some of those tensions. And the final point I'll make, in response to your point, sir, there, is, there was a thing called the Schools Linking Network, which enabled schools in different communities to link up with other schools to share experiences. Some of them were rural to urban, some of them were single faith to multi-faith, and I think that enabling schools to talk to each other and share experience pupil to pupil is incredibly valuable. I think that was probably four minutes or more. <laughs> Thank you very much, Graham. You had, uh, you had us spellbound. Uh, I want to go across uh, the table and ask Sean to respond. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'd, I'd like to start um, with, I think, the colleague, the gentleman who from Bristol in the in the second row, uh, and you made an observation um, about act activities and the importance of exposing children and young people to to different things, things that they've not really had the opportunity to explore and engage with before. My, my general response to that, from a from a developmental perspective, from a psychological perspective, is anything that can increase cohesion, anything that can increase learning, anything that can increase self-esteem is a good thing. And, and, if, and if those activities happen to be part of the equation, so be it, that's fine. I think Graham's very eloquently summarized the fact that there isn't one simple, easy explanation as to why children and young people are radicalized. Yes, we can put forward a hypothesis that um, a significant proportion of children and young people who are at risk of radicalization or indeed have been radicalized already um, have some of those obvious risk factors, social exclusion, deprivation, social communication difficulties, profound problems within the family. Um, also, children from societies um, which have been fractured and fragmented by war and conflict as well. And in my many years of working in Sierra Leone and Liberia, um, when the war finished um, in 2000, um, conflict continued on the, on the streets and in the community for years after, because you had generations of young people who'd grown up knowing nothing else but violence, and violence in its very extreme and very raw form. And the children I've worked with in South Sudan in more recent times, the same, from birth to this very day, um, their experience has been fragmentation of society, conflict, violence. Those two examples I give, not within the context of radicalization that this, this forum is about, but the similarities are there. One thing I touched on but didn't touch on enough um, earlier on is the susceptibility and the malleability of the adolescent brain. We're dealing with young people at a very crucial stage of their development. Um, those of you who have your own children will know that teenagers are the biggest challenge to have. You tell them to do something, they don't want to do it. There's that instinctive, natural rebellion to the social order. Um, and that's an intrinsic part of, of adolescence and growing and learning, and that's something that we need to tap into. Um, colleague at the back made a, made a point about the, the difficulties of us working within the context of a very challenging political climate. I don't know what to say to that beyond acknowledging that yes, that does present challenges for us as individuals and collectively. We may be working in a political context we don't agree with personally. We may, be, we may have issues with the order of the day and how it's been implemented. Um, 
I, for one, can only say that I would rather be um, working in a way that is prevention rather than cure, which sadly we're, we're kind of getting into now. Thank you very much, Sean. Um, you've drawn our attention to a number of issues that are interesting, and in particular the current debate even here in London on what to do to intervene and the balance between military options, which are political, the diplomacy and dialogue. Very interesting area. Um, I'd like to ask Professor to give us some response. Thank you. Well, thank you, Chairman. A, f a few points, really. Um, just starting, you know, this evidence point. I mean, it, we have to remind ourselves that no evidence of effect is not evidence of no effect. And, and, and when you're dealing with very complex um, systems, uh, that has to be borne in mind. I mean, you know, the Victorians in this country took action. Famously, John Snow and the Broad Street pump in Soho in the cholera outbreak, taking the handle off the pump um, uh, when the cholera uh, epidemic was at its height, um, 20 years before we knew about the germ theory of disease. So, you know, often you have to take action uh, in, in the absence of clear evidence. Having said that, um, we know from work that the Pan American Health Organization had been involved with in Latin America, in Colombia particularly, with very high rates of homicide, um, that it's possible to effect change at a community level. In that case, particularly working with um, mothers, uh, not wishing their son to be the next one to be murdered, uh, identifying com uh, key community activists uh, who can have an influence in their, in their, in their community. Um, but, and, and in that case of homicide uh, at a neighborhood and city level, um, there, are, there are different levels of um, factor. Um, at, at one level, it raises the question of governance of a city, of um, the corruption, of the policing, of whether law enforcement can be trusted, whether citizens are able to call upon uh, the, the police or the, the, the law agency to, you know, these are important factors. And then at the, at the very local and neighborhood level, there are precipitating factors to do with drugs and alcohol and availability of weapons and so on. So there is a list of things that one can actually define. But it reminds me, we haven't discussed at all this afternoon, the um, ma major issue of uh, rapid urbanization, which is a global phenomenon now, and we know in the European experience that um, 1848, 1848 was the year of revolution in Europe when we'd had very large numbers of people moving to the towns and cities. The cities had been growing very fast. You had concentrations of young people, disaffected young people, forming political movements, organizing themselves, and governments had to respond. And what we've got now is the same situation on a massive scale globally of, of huge cities, rapid urbanizations, and the, the governance arrangements of, of cities, the credibility of the governing uh, bodies, the, the, the mayors can have a very significant effect in this context. Um, the policing arrangements, all these things are important, as well as the sort of things we've been touching on to do with people having a stake, young people being able to find a passion that will uh, mobilize them and, and give them satisfaction. Um, so just finally, a couple of, um, couple of other points. Um, uh, adult education points, very, in, in the British context, we, 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 know, we know that during the Second World War, 
all of our soldiers came back from the Second World War with much greater political awareness and social awareness from the kind of adult education that they'd experienced in the field when they weren't fighting. And um, an adult ed the Workers' Education Association in North Africa with the British troops educated uh, the British troops and they came back and to his great surprise voted Mr. Churchill out of office and voted for a welfare state. Um, you know, this was what happened. And adult education can be very powerful. Um, on, on the Bristol point, um, I've in this country been working quite closely with the Institute for Outdoor Learning. Outdoor learning, forest schools, outdoor schools is, is undergoing a great renaissance in Europe at the present time. And this thing about getting out into the outdoors, providing people with uh, testing opportunities, rites of passage, if you like, the sort of things that are missing so frequently in, in modern life as opposed to traditional life, um, are things that we should think about and, and where they can provide opportunity for youngsters from very different backgrounds to do things together and to get insights and understanding uh, of each other. And that whole twinning uh, potential of the Commonwealth and, uh, and, and other uh, bodies is, is important. I think finally I'd just say um, we have to celebrate success and we have to find examples of where things aren't a problem and, and, what, and what it is about that uh, that's, that means that people live comfortably side by side, they don't have the aggression and the, uh, and the misinformation taking root uh, and we need to find that. We, part of the problem in our scientific history and method, and certainly in medicine, is we focus on the pathology, and we don't look at the at the positive. We don't look at the promotion of the positive, and you know what Antonovsky called salutogenesis, health health promotion, health generation, or positive generation. We need to look at salutogenesis, generation of well-being, and how you do that, rather than just focusing all the time on the pathology. Thank you very much, Professor. Um, that is our last comment back to you in terms of the issues you've raised. And because we're moving towards closure, I just want to build from that last response to some of the practical actions we can take. And just to help us think together, we are delighted as the Secretariat that this conversation is taking place here. And there are colleagues, of course, amongst us whom I'm sure will want to engage you afterwards on practical actions that we can take but I want to just draw our attention to the incoming chair in office, the Prime Minister of Malta, who at Chogam asked us to focus on youth at community level and the role of traditional leaders who are opinion shapers in the context of those youth. I then just want to build on Professor's last comments and speak about adult education and the role that some of our Commonwealth-associated organizations play, and in particular, the Commonwealth of Learning. And that's not to say there aren't others here that can also contribute. I make light mention of the fact that we have the whole world at Paris, in Paris now at COP21, where climate change is a central concern. And so some of the discussion here on having outdoor experiences for young people perhaps could draw on the wealth of discussions that may be prevalent or they may be discussed within the context of climate change. And on celebrating success, I just want to share a personal experience on a trip to Fiji. We visited small communities, and one in particular called Volivoli, where the president and other leaders had actually given an award to the village for being violence-free. In that context, a village without domestic violence over a certain period of time 
would receive commendation from the president. And in a rapid manner, several villages in Fiji became violence-free. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, we want to close. And I'd like to ask Her Excellency Professor Joyce Kikafunda to say something about our discussions this afternoon. And just so that you know, um, Excellency Kikafunda went to a very celebrated school in Uganda, Gayaza High School. Uh, the motto of the school being never give up. And she has studied and, yes, and gone beyond um, what would be considered from, uh, from uh, Uganda, um, an, um, an average norm. We have with us a professor, professor of food science and technology. She has excelled in education. She has distinguished herself. Her specific interests are in eradicating poverty and reducing childhood malnutrition. Um, the President of Uganda honored uh, Her Excellency in recognition of her valuable contribution to the future of Ugandan agriculture in the year 2009. She's now a High Commissioner in London, and I want to invite her to say something to us as we close our session this afternoon. Your Excellency. Thank you very much, Madam Chair, Dr. Josephine, for those kind words. Madam Chair, 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 Panelists, <coughs> Excellencies, Distinguished uh, Participants, good afternoon. I hope you've had, uh, I fear you've had an interesting time here with us in this afternoon. This very important discussion on radicalization. I would like to thank the Commonwealth for tabling this very important uh, subject at this time. It's very important that you bring it up and I would like to thank all the participants for leaving your busy schedules to come and participate. I thank the panelists for insightful presentations and I would like to thank the audience for very rich contributions. The chair kicked us off with the, the four R's, and that was the, the risk, resilience, respect, and rehabilitation. That was very, very important for, for starting. I would like to recognize the global importance of this issue, which was raised, that is violent extremism and, of course, radicalization. As the chair said, the heads uh, of government, the Commonwealth in Malta, gave this topic uh, priority discussion. I was there and uh, they came up actually in their communique. In the interest of time, I will not read it but because she had said, uh, given excerpts of it, but uh, they really gave it importance because it's a very, very especially at this time in view of what is happening. The heads affirmed that radicalization and violent extremism, terrorism, in all its forms, they condemned it. And uh, what is important also, they said, we should not link it to one group, we should not link it to a religion, we should not link it to a tribe or a gender, because if we do that, then we will not handle it in its uh, important way. 
the communique, I think it's a public document, so uh, each one can read because it has quite uh, several paragraphs on that, and in the interest of time, I will not read. But I bring that up to show you the importance of this uh, topic that we are discussing this afternoon and how our uh, 53 uh, the heads of government or their representatives paid the tribute to it in Malta just last week. This is a challenging and complex issue that needs every sector to contribute to ensure a comprehensive approach so that we can be sure we are going to have a common stand on it. This is because no one is spared, no country is immune to this problem. This is not a case where you can say, no, it is at my neighbors, for me I'm okay, because tomorrow it will be at your door, as I'll be telling you as I go along. We have heard today about the importance of the role of education. The education plays, for example, in developing skills of critical thinking, violence prevention approaches, and the role of education in developing respectful relationships. The panelists, the, the doctor, concentrated on schools, mainly because uh, schools are environments where young people are. And although we agree that also adults get this problem, but it starts when the people are young. And I think if you want to get to the root cause of a problem, you start it when the, people, when the children are young and the schools is an environment where most uh, people, most children go through. Then we have also heard the role health plays in identifying risk factors and the early interventions in order to develop social and emotional resilience skills, social, emotional and resilience skills, as well as the wider public health approaches and the issues of mental health, which definitely will play a, a big role. Both the health and education sectors also play a significant role in rehabilitation, including the role of education in creating employment. I think we can pause there we must, you know, there are so many causes. We cannot focus on one and leave the other, but we must all agree that employment is key. Because lack of employment, lack of active, you know, deployment, because an hydro mind, an hydro body, we all know what it can breed. So where we can avoid, if we can, uh, provide employment for our youth, we try to do that. Not that it will completely remove, but we try, when you have a huge problem on your hands like that, you tackle it at every, you do the little you can, and if we all come in, I think that's how we can solve it. As I said, this problem, really, each country is vulnerable, what happened in a, uh, Paris is very, very fresh in our hand, in our minds, 
but we can't uh, forget uh, 2011 also, and many other places. In my own country, Uganda, we are also not spared because in 2011 we also had uh, attacks, actually. People were happy, enjoying watching World Cup, and uh, in two places, simultaneously, they, they were attacked and uh, almost 100 people were killed. So each one of us, each country is, is vulnerable. Lastly, Madam Chair, Excellencies, distinguished participants, the key role that health and education sectors play in this very important uh, subject is their ability to create the values and behaviors of the sorts of societies we want to live in. And this is where now the, the Commonwealth, Commonwealth of 53 countries comes in because if we all have these our values that we, we respect, then definitely we will be tackling, forming a channel to tackle this very important uh, problem. So the, the values and behaviors of the sorts of societies we want to live in and we need to tailor, these, to tailor our resources to create a positive goal of engaged, of engaged and empowered citizens in order that we can combat radicalization and this extremism which is amidst us. I thank you. I'd like us to thank Excellency Joyce Kekafunda and ourselves, also and the panelists for a very rich and robust um, discussion. I've, I'd like to take from her closing note, the goal being to have an empowered and engaged citizenry. And I think uh, with all the conversation we've had this afternoon, I'm sure we can attest to the fact that health and education find themselves located at the center of our efforts to combat violent extremism and radicalization. I'd like to thank each one of us for the participation this afternoon. The Secretariat is fast moving forward towards establishing a functional unit on countering violent extremism. And the thoughts that you've shared this afternoon will definitely be part of our response to this big challenge on countering violent extremism. Thank you, Joanne, and your team. Thank you to the panelists, and I think here we shall close. Joanne.